Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression from the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal. I'm Jerry Baker, editor-at-large of the journal. If you're not already a subscriber to Free Expression, please do sign up at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or indeed wherever you do your listening. This week, with just a little over 10 weeks until the first votes are cast in the 2024 presidential election, and exactly a year before the general election itself, how does the race stand? Republicans in Iowa will go to their presidential nominating caucuses on January the 15th, and all the polling still indicates that Donald Trump maintains a significant lead over all comers, including in that state of Iowa, which he actually lost in the 2016 primary. The same polls do suggest that Nikki Haley, however, is very much on the rise, and Ron DeSantis is waning. But are they perhaps still too far behind now for it to make any difference? Mr. Trump is expected to be absent again next week when perhaps just a handful of candidates are due to take part in the party's third debate in Miami. One man who definitely won't be there, former Vice President Mike Pence, who dropped out of the race last week. Meanwhile, on the Democratic side, there's a new challenger to Joe Biden. The hitherto generally unknown Minnesota Congressman Dean Phillips jumped into the race, hoping to capitalize on growing Democratic doubts about the incumbent president's age and fitness for office. Could he make any difference? perhaps at least by incentivizing others to join the democratic contest. How might the war in the Middle East affect our domestic politics? Will the demonstrations of support that we've seen for Hamas on the extreme left damage President Biden's standing within his own party? With me to discuss all of this and much more is veteran pollster Mark Penn. Mark is chairman and CEO of Stagwell, a major marketing company. Of course, he served as chief strategist and pollster for the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2008, And he's worked on a number of other campaigns for a range of candidates. And Mark Penn joins me now. Mark, thanks very much for joining Free Expression. Thank you for having me on. So I want to get on to talking, obviously, about the the big political stuff, the national presidential race, the interesting developments, perhaps on both sides, in both parties, and maybe in the middle too. But can we start off with, because you had a very interesting poll last week, I want to talk about the kind of domestic political impact that we're seeing from the war in the Middle East. And we've seen these extraordinary demonstrations, pro-Hamas, essentially pro-Palestinian demonstrations on campuses and around the country, the likes of which I think many of us can hardly recall ever really having seen before. And you had a poll last week, very interestingly, which showed a remarkably high level of sympathy for Hamas among younger Americans, I think in particular among 18 to 24-year-olds. What's going on in your view, Mark, here? How are we seeing what, what seems to be like pretty unprecedented displays of, again, sympathy or even support for what are Palestinian terrorists? First, it's also important to note there were extraordinarily high levels of support for Israel among uh, particularly older voters. In that poll, which, which overall it was about 84, 16, when you ask the question, are you more with Israel or Hamas, almost 85% were with Israel. And among over 65, which... Uh, some of us here qualify for, it was 95 to 5. But when you looked at 18 to 24, it was 52 for Israel, 48 for Hamas, right? Which really shows, well, how did that explain to me how the president is taking such a strong position, Congress is taking a strong, Hillary Clinton is taking a strong position, but you see all these demonstrations on campus. You You have to realize each generation is in their own envelope. 
this generation didn't really understand even 9-11, let alone the 1973 war, let alone the formation of Israel. And they've received a lot of information that says that Israel is an oppressor or apartheid nation, and it's a place they've never visited, not had any contact with, and have been easily convinced or persuaded to go on these demonstrations. And many of them also didn't even believe that the atrocities had occurred, despite the mm. you know, clear news reports that this is what happened. What explains this, as you say, persuading them, politely put it, persuading them of this position? Is it education? Is it this extreme sort of left-wing ideology we see on campuses? Is it the culture? Is it media? Where are they getting this information from? Well, look, I think it has to be a combination Right of really the left-wing ideology that's been sold on campuses, right, about colonization, oppressor, oppressor, that they think they're just tying into something that they've been taught over the last few years. I think social media clearly plays a role in organizing that. And, you know, you have to question to what extent is their underlying, you know, religion also playing a role here. I think there's three or four elements of it. But most importantly, and when I was at Harvard studying this very question, I was very impressed by a book by Seymour Martin Lipset called Rebellion in the University, in which he basically said kids in the universities were always this way. They always were radicals then. They always kind of picked up on issues like this. Most of the time, they were anti-war. They were never pro uh, the destruction of Israel, supporting atrocities before, but I'm not clear that about half the kids who were supporting didn't even know exactly what they really are supporting based on some of the internal questions. But then when they grow up, when they become the over 65 group, they have a very, very different politics, understanding of the world. And that's what you see here in our generations of the over 65 or even the ones over 50. I grew up in England where I went to university. We used to have a saying that if you weren't a socialist when you were 20, you didn't have a heart. And if you were still a socialist when you were 40, you didn't have a brain. Let's hope that this is simply the folly of youth, as it were, and that maybe we're uh, like all generations before them as they grow up and understand how the world really works. Things will change. But what about the politics, what about the immediate political impact of this, Mark? Clearly, you know, we have the squad. We have, the, again, far left of the Democratic Democratic Party, again, voicing support for, you know, calling for a ceasefire, criticizing Israel, voicing support for Palestinian terrorists, essentially. And you've got Cornell West running as an independent candidate, the left-wing African-American professor. Do you think this could affect the presidential race in any significant way? Well, you really can't really predict the path that a war is going to go very well. So we don't know if this is going to, like, be something that Israel finishes up in a couple of weeks, and then there's an international convening of a number of countries that create a new government in Gaza, or if this war is going to rage on for a year and, and turn into another Ukraine or become a regional war. There are so many events that haven't played itself out that I hesitate to say, oh, well, this is the Biden's done. You know, quite the opposite, though. In general, I would say Biden is engendering opposition from the left wing of the Democratic Party, not all of it, but some of it, particularly the squad. And that may be a good thing for him at the end of the day. He is losing to Trump now by four or five points in many polls and in many swing states. And he took a strong position. He doesn't seem to be bending to the will of the left. And he had a 58% approval of his Israel position in my poll. 
I saw 52% in another poll. He hasn't had an approval over 50 on anything for quite some time. So this could remake his presidency and have a very positive outcome for him as he impresses the swing voters who really didn't want Trump but thought he was too old. I mean, look, there's nothing to dispel the idea that you're too old than successfully managing an international crisis and war. And generally speaking, though, again, you're right, these are unpredictable, we don't know, but there is a sense, isn't there, of the world kind of spinning out of control. Again, we don't know what's going to happen. Israel pursues its war, obviously, against Hamas. There's real danger of escalation and dissemination, if you like, of that war. We are already seeing what's going on, continuing to go on between Russia and Ukraine. There's all these fears, obviously, about what may happen between China and Taiwan. I mean, do you think this is contributing generally to Biden's problems here, that people look, again, whether or not you give credit to Donald Trump for this, people look back four years and see the world was largely at peace. We had stable inflation, low inflation, largely stable prices. And there's just this international climate in particular is contributing to a sense of real concern on the part of the American people. Is that a powerful effect or could it be superseded by what you've just described, which is kind of approval of Joe Biden handling and a support for Israel, handling this crisis in a way that people generally support? Well, as I emphasize again, wars have uncertain outcomes. And as a result, no one wants a war. American patience for war is very limited. There is really strong bipartisan support here for Israel. You know, while there's a segment of the left that's in the Democratic Party that's against it, overwhelmingly strong support from the rest of the Democratic Party. And this thing tends to cut more by generation than it does by party. And so the president has an opportunity to lead kind of a bipartisan consensus for Israel. And I think more importantly, though, the president has to decide to what extent he is reexamining his policy toward Iran. I think one of his weaknesses obviously, is what happened in Afghanistan and the sense that the administration, filled with people from the Obama administration, had been Pollyannish about Iran and that this is a proxy war fought by Iran right now with over nearly 30 attacks on American soldiers and a very limited response by the U.S., right? How much he pivots against Iran and actually contains them will say a lot about whether he's a successful president or not. You know, presidents come into office expecting to, to do one thing. I think Bush planned on being an education president and wound up being the 9-11 terrorist president. I think you may see the same thing happen here with President Biden, who really hadn't put all that much effort into the Mideast until now. What's the polling suggest as of now? Sorry to put it so cynically. Is it helping Biden or is it hurting him? Well, as I said, I don't see any real change in the overall numbers. I've seen a lot made of this Gallup poll where his Democratic numbers went from 85 to 74 or something like that, an 11 point, which frankly is barely significant among a subsample. And, and he's down to 37 in Gallup, but he was at 37 before. And I noticed looking at the Reuters poll that what had been happening is the immigration issue had been becoming a bipartisan issue against him when it previously had been just a Democratic issue. So I don't think we have any real evidence. My guess is he's actually going to be doing a little bit better because there are a lot of swing moderate voters out there and independent voters who have to say for the first time in a long time, wow, I really think he's showing some strength. 
and is handling the situation, you know, the way an American president should. All right, let's dig down into the two parties nominating contests then. We are just a couple of months away now from the first votes being cast, at least in the Republican primary. Since we're on Joe Biden, let's continue with Joe Biden. We have a new name after such a lot of stasis in this presidential race. We have a new name to conjure with now in the presidential race on the Democratic side. Dean Phillips, who announced he was running last week, congressman from Minnesota, basically saying the quiet part out loud, as it were, that Democrats have been saying Joe Biden is too old, he's unfit really to serve another term. And in Dean Phillips' view, this is a mortal threat to the Democratic Party, indeed to the country, because it makes him a very weak candidate in the general election and Donald Trump would therefore be president. Now, again, Phillips, a bit of an, an unknown quantity. I kind of joked a little bit about him in my column this week saying, you know, if I'd asked you the name a week ago, you probably might have thought he was like a second tier NASCAR driver or something like that. But he is running. We have seen these kind of long shot stalking horse candidates in the past cause damage to a, an incumbent president. What's your sense, first of all, of this particular challenge? Should Joe Biden be worried? Well, he's no Eugene McCarthy here. Okay, He's as pro-Israel as Biden. So he's running on the notion that Biden's not equipped to be president. He has a tactical advantage in New Hampshire because Biden decided not to play in New Hampshire in this move to move the primaries around, which was sort of a mistake on his part. But I don't really see it as rising to a serious challenge. I don't think that Democrats are going to unseat a sitting president who's running for re-election, who has the organization, the team, the staff, the government, and all of those things behind him for Dean Phillips. Is there anything that can stop Biden getting the nomination in your view? I mean, other than obviously, God forbid, some actual health issue or a decision on his own part to pull out, do you think he's completely invulnerable? Aside from those two things, aside from him making a decision to pull out or him taking an unexpected turn with health, yes, I think he's basically inevitable as the nominee. And on that primary process, as you say, they did juggle around the schedule, South Carolina getting prominence. Iowa obviously has gone away for them after the disaster of 2020. And as you say, New Hampshire, the traditional first race, first contest has to great controversy in New Hampshire is no longer for them. Again, what do you expect? As you say, I mean, there will be a contest there. Biden is not playing there. I mean, if Phillips or indeed somebody else, or there was some kind of a write-in campaign in New Hampshire for somebody, would people just ignore it? Would they say, well, Biden wasn't there, that we've changed the calendar, everything's on South Carolina? Could we just forget New Hampshire as far as the Democrats are concerned? I think that that's the way this is likely to roll. There are no debates. There's not going to be any clash. There's going to be someone who's little known, not particularly more qualified than Joe Biden to be president. And the first real primary is going to take off in South Carolina. Unless there's a real change in that primary, then things will just roll on from there. Where, you know, friend, There won't be a lot of voters that come out for this primary. It's a non-primary primary. And the parlor game that everybody plays every time there's an incumbent president is question whether or not he runs again with his vice president. There will doubtless be some speculation about that. Kamala Harris, is, uh, in your polling and everybody else's polling, is, to put it mildly, not viewed very highly by the American people. But again, you don't expect any change there. Look, I always thought his best move would have been to appoint her to the Supreme Court when he had a vacancy and solve two problems with one move. But he didn't, right? And I think that it would create quite an internal ruckus in the party if he made any change and she wouldn't go willingly. So uh, I think the ticket's the ticket, you know. Look, things do change in politics. Uh, this is one of the situations where I'd have to rate change as a 20% factor here in terms of the nomination and any changes in the ticket and say there's probably an 80% probability what you see is what you get. We're going to take a short break there, but when we come back, I'll have more with Mark Penn on the state of the presidential race. Stay with us. 
This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. I'm back with Mark Penn, pollster, chairman and CEO of Stagwell, and we're talking about the 2024 presidential race, current state of the polling. All right, let's move on to the Republican side. We've got another debate coming up next week, although it's not going to be much of a debate because I think only a few candidates have qualified. With Mike Pence pulled out last week, Donald Trump, of course, isn't going to be there. Again, are you seeing anything at all in your polling to suggest that that race isn't essentially done and dusted? I think here, quite the opposite. I think this is an exciting, interesting race that's becoming more interesting. Donald Trump did not do well in terms of Israel. He did not become like the go-to person for what our position should be on it. He said some ham-handed stuff, actually. And then Nikki Haley, you know, foreign policy experience. She is the only candidate showing momentum. She's tied for second in Iowa. And because Iowa is so conservative, nobody really expected her to do particularly well in Iowa at all. So I think you do have a path here uh, very clearly behind Nikki Haley. Remember that the Wall Street Journal poll shows that 51% of Republican primary voters live in the suburbs, 49% are women. There are no very few urbanites and a bunch of rural people, but that's a smaller segment compared to the suburbs, which is how the Republicans have wound up with Mitt Romney and John McCain and unexpected, more moderate, or let's call them somewhat conservative, nominees. So you could really have a path here where she, if she comes in second in Iowa, Ron DeSantis is out at that point. It's a two-person race. Trump is polling in the 40s, right, in these early states. The rest of the candidates could drop out quickly by New Hampshire. She could then have a one-on-one race in which she picks up all of the anti-Trump vote. Seems like somebody who has the ability to win the general election, has the right profile, and frankly, has shown, you know, each time she gets out there, more and more voters actually like her and are comfortable. Is that anti-Trump vote big enough? And one of the interesting things, we had that Des Moines Register poll this week, which, as you say, showed Haley and DeSantis tied, I think, at 16 percent in second place behind Trump in the sort of mid-40s. And then they asked the sort of second preferences for the various candidates. And everybody was like, oh, you know, because I think people paid a lot of attention to the fact that only, I think, about 60 percent of Trump supporters said they were solidly for Trump. So you do the math and that gets you down to about 27, 28 percent are only solidly for Trump. But then you ask the voters what they think of the other candidates. And if they drop out, who their second choice would be, and like for DeSantis, DeSantis, a very large number of his second choices go to Trump. Some of the other candidates, a significant number of their second choices go to Trump. I'm just wondering, even if everybody else jumps out of the race except for Nikki Haley, if they're 50% plus one for Nikki Haley against Donald Trump rather than um, a rather significant majority for Donald Trump. Well, I think that she's going to have to make that happen. Trump didn't get to 50% starting out either. Look, I read that poll. He's at 43 the next two challengers, I add them up, they're at 32. So already it's an 11-point race. Nobody's near 50%. And I think the people who aren't voting for Trump, no matter what they say on the second choice, are unlikely to wind up in Trump's camp. So, look, I can't say that she can deliver, but she has momentum. 
She has really good positioning in terms of the demographics. There are 23 states here that take independence. This thing doesn't have to be won in the first couple of states. Remember, if you just come in pretty well in the first couple of states and you clear the field, you're going to be declared the person to watch. You're going to get unlimited national publicity, right? Every TV interview there is. And so I'm not saying it's a probability. As a reader of polls and primaries, she's got momentum. He's in the 40s. He's got growing problems in these courts with these legal issues, with his failure to really connect on the emerging crises. And a demographic population in the Republican primary that I think is a little different than people really think. And she could win it somewhere in the next 20 primaries if she just clears the field in the first two or three. That's a remarkable thing for you to say. One of the things here, as you know, again, better than anyone, is the expectations game is important here. And is there a slight danger that Nikki Haley, you know, these expectations could, especially in Iowa, could be running slightly too far ahead for her now? I mean, she's not been thought to be competitive in Iowa, as you said pretty well at the start here of this part of the conversation. You know, she's got, by all accounts, got very little ground game in Iowa, which we know in the caucus state is incredibly important. You know, she doesn't have that appeal to the sort of Christian conservatives, I think, that other voters would have who are important in the Iowa caucuses. You know, she's already two months out tied with DeSantis for second place and could advance further. I mean, is there a risk here that she could actually, even if she did really well, she won't be doing quite as well as maybe the expectations that have suddenly started to build up? No, I don't think that's the case. I think, you know, President Clinton was the best of this one. Like he would come in second or third and declare victory. Coming in second is a huge victory for her. She was considered out of the race almost when it began. And I go back to my point, momentum. That means she went from zero whatever she got to. And even if she produced the tie vote here, but differentiated in New Hampshire, and then went down and really won South Carolina, right? Then you're off to the races here, right? And then by the time you get to a lot of these big states where Trump is not that well liked and people were looking for an alternative and there's a big suburban vote. I'm not saying it's a probability, but it's sure is a reasonable course. And I don't see anybody else with that course. I think that was the course that Ron DeSantis had, and he blew it by trying to be too conservative in his approach and trying to get the bedrock Trump supporters instead of cleaning up everybody else first. Is DeSantis finished, in your view? Um, Again, I could easily have egg on my face because of primary politics, but if I had to say so, he's young, he'll be back again. This doesn't really look like it was his time. I agree with you completely. I mean, it would certainly be very interesting if the race devolved quite quickly into a two-horse race between Trump and Haley. And as you say, that's certainly the trajectory we're on and she has the momentum. We've all come to, I think, (laughs) with varying degrees of enthusiasm or reluctance to kind of see the Republican Party as Donald Trump's party over the last six or seven years, right? I mean, he won, obviously, the primary in 2016, president for four years. People thought he might go away after he lost and January the 6th and all of that, but he's come back. And it does seem to be, in terms of its sensibilities and terms of its politics, obviously its ideology, if you can call it that, it seems to be the sort of Trumpian populist party. Nikki Haley, I accept the point about, you know, that she's running, you know, she's probably benefiting from the crisis internationally, but she still seems very, very much in the kind of mold of the Reagan Republican Party, which, you know, again, does seem to have been eclipsed by Trump over the last few years. But you're saying actually... Again, I take your point. You're not saying it's a probability. You probably st- you'd still put your money on Trump if I put you up against the wall and said, who do you think is going to win? But it would seem like a big turnaround for Nikki Haley to get the nomination, not just overcoming Trump's huge lead in the polls, but it would seem to kind of, again, be a sort of repudiation of where the party seems to have been going for the last six years. Absolutely. I think you're right about that. And so the question is in these primaries, 
and there are 23 states with independents. And there's no Democratic primary so that the independents that might have been in the Democratic primary can vote in the Republican primary. Is there an electorate here that is much more somewhat conservative as opposed to very conservative and even some moderates that actually could defeat Donald Trump and who, even if they find Haley conservative enough for them and much more likely to win a general election and much more, you know, there's another factor here, which is even if Trump won, would he be able to unite the country and what would the country look like under Trump? Right. In terms of the divisions, and a lot of people are they were looking for peace with Biden. They didn't get it. Nikki Haley might be the candidate that could provide that that greater peace and that elusive goal of more bipartisanship. OK, let's speculate even more wildly now and jump ahead to the general election matchup as it stands. And obviously you poll that. You just talked earlier in the interview about how Trump has a small lead over Biden in that in the case. Let's set Nikki Haley aside for the moment. Trump has a small lead over Biden. What we have seen in some polling, and I think including in yours, is this quite strong support, so historically strong support for a third party candidate. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has been polling in the kind of high teens, I think, in a general election contest. Are you seeing that? Do you think, again, if it is Trump v. Biden, do you expect Kennedy or maybe another third party candidate, which again, we've talked about Cornell West and others, are you expecting a sizable third or even fourth party vote this time? Look, I polled on this question a lot over the years. I did Ross Perot's benchmark, pulled for John Anderson. And in full disclosure, my wife runs no labels. And I have never seen a situation more ripe for a potential centrist third party. Uh, you know, not Cornell West, not Robert, but a centrist group, right, positioned close to where Ross Perot was. So that opportunity here, there's so many people are upset about the economy, upset about immigration, upset about the government, upset about the division, don't want either Trump and Biden to run. And when you ask the question, would you consider a centrist independent between 50 and 60 percent in various polls say they consider it? That's about double what I saw when I did the Ross Perot benchmark. So I've never seen a condition more ripe for that if, in fact, the two parties turn out to have Trump be Biden. Now you say of not RFK Jr., obviously not Cornell West. Any potential names out there that you think that would fit that kind of centrist description? I think that there will be people who fit this bill, either coming out of business, coming out of the military, you know, and coming out of some of the centrist senators, you know, and they're not necessarily who you expect, right? Because nobody expected Ross Perot. Nobody expected even Barack Obama or Jimmy Carter. The people who wind up are often unexpected. And in terms of the share of the vote, I mean, are we talking about, you've said you've never seen circumstances so propitious for a third party candidate. Are we seriously talking about them conceivably getting even enough votes? I mean, we, you know, in the 30s or more to actually win the election? Or is it again, just as it was with Ross Perot, both in 92 and 96, kind of a very significant spoiler? Well, Perot, I think, took more or less evenly but he was at 39% before he went a little batty and pulled out. And he wound up with close to 20% with an incompetent vice president. He could have won. I, we used to have, when I was doing polling in those days, what we would call freelance billionaire wants to run for president poll. And you always told them, you know, and I had the questionnaire, which is why I like Bird and know how quickly I could do this questionnaire. And you always did the poll for them. You always said, look, not your time. And Ross Perot's case, it came back, you know, you could win. And he did get up to 39% before whatever personal demons caused him to drop out only to get back in in the last minute. If he hadn't done that, he had a brilliant campaign 
focused on government spending through 30-minute infomercials that was really picking up incredible traction. So can somebody craft a smart campaign about how they would fix government, bring it back into line and get it functioning again that could get a lot of traction in this condition? Yes, absolutely. If we don't get that kind of a third-party candidate, and it is RFK Junior as it stands at the moment, what's your polling telling you and what's your sense telling you of where he draws more votes from and you know who benefits and who loses between Trump and Biden? Trump is ahead. Trump is ahead by enough. I don't think the others change that outcome. A lot could change whether Trump remains Trump or defeats himself or gets enmeshed in this. But if you ask me, today Trump soundly beats Biden in the latest round of polling. And it doesn't, and these extra candidates there really aren't relevant to that outcome. You're as emphatic as that, that he soundly beats Biden now. He's beating by four or five in mine, one or two in others. You know, Biden won with a five point lead in the popular vote. If when these polls are come out even or one to four points in favor of Trump, that means he's won the Electoral College by a pretty wide margin. A genuine landslide in the Electoral College, at least. And actually, in terms of the popular vote, by standards of recent elections, to be up there with at least Barack Obama's victory. We are early. Predictions are often wrong. This is a snapshot in today's time. Trump has to run the legal gauntlet. Biden has to come out of this Mideast conflict, a true world leader. If he does, he's going to be a very different Biden from before he went in, who has been frankly crippled as a president since Afghanistan. And this is the way he could undo that. Briefly on Trump's legal issues, again, from your polling and from your judgment, you know, there's a fair chance, I think we'd have to say that he's going to be convicted in one of these cases in the course of the next year, fair chance. Any sense at all of how that, I mean, again, everything we've seen so far, that certainly in terms of Republican voters, these legal problems only seem to help him. Any sense of what it might do in a general election? Well, hard to predict. So the real question is not, is he going to win or lose? The question is, is evidence that's going to be presented damaging enough to take out those voters who say, look, you know, the economy was better, immigration was better, the international situation was better. I know there'll be a lot of division, but I have to bring Trump back. And is that voter then going to be influenced by what happens in the legal cases? It really depends on the level of evidence here that comes out. He's got a tough case about the documents, but I don't think people care about the documents. I don't think he's looking very good in this trial that was supposed to be a joke trial about inflating assets. It looks like there's a really a big line up that that kind of plays into his big weakness that he's not truthful. Well, on that note, I wish we could talk more, but one thing I'm absolutely sure about is we'll have plenty of chances to talk more about this over the course of the next, uh, well, we're almost exactly a year away from the presidential election next November. Mark Penn, thank you very much indeed for joining Free Expression. Thank you, Jerry. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Free Expression. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back next week with another discussion about the major issues that are shaping the world today. In the meantime, have a great week and thanks very much for joining us. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.